Hello, and welcome to the Business Decisions Podcast. My name is Stuart Wood, and I'm the CEO of Caravel Law. Every week, we bring you stories and insights from founders, owners, and leaders of great businesses, followed by some thoughts and input from one of Caravel's lawyers. Caravel Law has been a leader in legal innovation in Canada since 2004 and has helped many startups and small businesses overcome challenges as they have scaled and succeeded. Our hope is that these discussions will help existing business leaders and inspire others to start their own ventures. Now, let's get to today's guest. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by David Burney, the principal and founder of The Burney Group, a boutique consulting firm based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The Burney Group helps companies, large and small, with a wide variety of projects with a special focus on automation and how it can improve the business processes of their clients. David has taken the rare step of building a consulting business from his own work up to a mid-sized firm and in a very short time has built up an impressive roster of clients. I think a lot of independent consultants who have considered building something larger will learn a lot from this conversation. Following my conversation with David Burney, I'm joined by another David, David Cummings, a lawyer with Caravel Law. We'll focus our conversation mostly on establishing service contract, how to deal with issues such as scope creep, and how service providers can structure agreements that work for both sides. So with that, Here's my conversation with David Burney of The Burney Group. All right, delighted to have on the podcast today, David Burney, the principal and founder at The Burney Group. Prior to launching The Burney Group in 2011, Dave was with McKinsey & Company for almost eight years, and before that worked at P&G for three years. He has an MBA from the London Business School and a BA with honors from the Richard Ivey School of Business at Western, where he was also a member of the football team, a defensive lineman, and he was a all-Canadian and academic All-Canadian at Western and was uh, actually drafted by the Hamilton Tiger Cats uh, way back in the day. But since 2011 has been running the Bernie Group and has established itself as a consulting firm here in the city of Toronto. And I'm delighted to have him on the podcast today. Thanks, Stuart. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about the Bernie Group. So as you mentioned, I founded the Bernie Group in 2011. The basic idea is to bring together the best of management consulting insights and capabilities combined with technology. So when I was at McKinsey, what I found was frequently the work that we did was really good, but our clients had a difficult time taking those ideas and implementing them and then sustaining them. And so what I thought was when I left McKinsey, I thought, well, what if we could do much of the similar work, but leverage technology to really transform and change the way that companies work. So rather than just trying to change behaviors, we can transform the way that things work through automation, through artificial intelligence. We can really radically change just the day-to-day. And what kind of projects do you work on for your clients? So we have a a wide variety of uh, work that we do. Typically, it will be in strategy and operations. And so we can help organizations to identify Um, What should their strategy be? And there's always a bit of a a technology angle to it, thinking about what innovation is going to be happening in their industry. And then we can also help um, deliver from an operational perspective. And so we do a lot of work around operations strategy and then actual implementation, whether that's a post-merger integration or we have a very broad automation team here. And so helping them to implement a robotic automation solution, as an example, is something that we can also do. And do you find it hard to find talented consultants who can come in and assist clients on the strategy side, but also have the the technology expertise they need to advise on those kinds of projects? It is difficult, but I think that's part of what makes the Burning Group 
uh, success is the ability to find the right people. And then we also think about having people lean in and specialize and focus. So we have some people who are really good at strategy. We have others who are very much focused on operations um, and others who, in particular areas of expertise, they're very focused in that area. So, for example, uh, we have a bunch of RPA developers who have been spent years just doing uh, automation. So how long do these projects usually last? Uh, typically, a typical project is about three to four months, but we will frequently work with clients over the long term. So we'll work, maybe uh, help them with a strategy project um, for three to four months. Maybe that would convert into support on the operation side. So many of our clients, we will work with them on and off um, for projects for years at a time. And do you see a lot of consulting firms trying to develop expertise on the technology side as well? I think so. I think that with the rise of technology and the impact that it's having, that most consulting firms, I think, are having to change their approach. I think that there's few, though, that have really taken the uh, the very focused approach to thinking about innovation and investing in the expertise and capabilities up front to help clients decide what their strategies should be and how they can execute. So you've been running the Bernie Group for about eight years now, and you've built up a pretty impressive list of clients. Was it difficult to get yourself established in this space uh, in the early years? Uh, it was, you know, it's been a, um, uh, a period of, of growth. And I, I feel like I can look back and every, there's sort of a few stages. Initially, when I left McKinsey to found my own firm, a lot of it was operating independently, going in and working with firms and providing high-level advice. Then it became a stage where I would be working along with team members. And so I um, would bring in independent consultants or at at a certain point, I actually brought on full-time team members to be able to deliver standalone projects as a team. And then there was a third phase, which we're in now, which is where I'm able to, uh, with some great senior leadership team members, provide guidance for the organization as a whole, where we now have practices and those practices can go out and those practice leaders can uh, execute on projects. So in the early years when you were getting the Bernie Group established, how important was it for you to be able to differentiate yourself from the other strategy consulting firms out there? So I think differentiation is always important. The question is, how do you do that when you're small? And, you know, I've gone up against some of these top global consulting firms and won projects. And for for us, the key then and now is about relationship. It's about um, based on prior work with people, do they trust you? Do they really believe in your ability to deliver? And so when I'm working with people today in our larger firm, I always talk about how important it is that every project that we work on, we deliver with excellence and that we're only as good as our last project. And so every project we do is about building that relationship, delivering results. And so I would say that that point of differentiation is really about the relationships we build with our clients. So are those relationships one of the keys to success when you're negotiating contracts and agreements with your clients for new projects? They are. And I think that as we, when we get into the negotiation phase, there's a certain element around the business aspects of a project 
And then frequently there's procurement aspects, especially as we start to work with larger organizations. The procurement side of that business becomes more and more relevant, and they just have certain boxes that need to be ticked and a certain approach they follow to all organizations. And so it becomes important to be able to not only satisfy the needs of the business uh, owner to say we're going to get the job done, but also from a procurement perspective, we need to be able to demonstrate that we are a company in good standing, that we've got um, a good good past history, and that we'll be able to deliver going forward. So when you're negotiating those types of agreements with large organizations that have procurement divisions and have standard contracts that they usually put in place with their service providers... How difficult is it to negotiate these agreements given that each project is unique and will require a custom agreement? It is, it can be frequently very difficult. When you're working with some of some large global organizations, they will have standard approaches of how they do things with, they'll even have for, for example, for consultants, like this is our standard contract for consultants. So What I will typically do is when I think about the contract as a whole, it's difficult to go in and line edit, especially at our size, every single element. But there are certain things that I'll look at and I will make sure that I um, analyze and assess and make sure I'm comfortable with before moving forward. So as an example, payment terms. Payment terms are a common one that there's some flexibility on the client side. Are you going to get 30, 45, 60-day payment terms? And these are things that typically can be negotiated. And it doesn't require a lawyer to go in and read language and contract. It's simply agreeing on the payment terms. Also, there's uh, many things like expenses, warranties, ownership of work. These are all things that I'll pay attention to. But especially for large organizations, they're going to have their standard template. So it's thinking about what some of those specific areas are where you can provide some input, where you can make changes, which will be most important. Do you ever have trouble getting these organizations to share with you the data and information that you need to do your projects, their internal information? Yes. So frequently when we have these contracts, whether they're large or small, many organizations will want payment to be tied to success. They will want to say, well, we, especially when we get into operational type of, of contracts, so I want to say, well, we want you to show that you've delivered this. Now, in some cases, we can demonstrate that, hey, we've delivered a certain amount of code, as an example. But in other uh, instances, they'll want actual proof that we've delivered results to say, yep, you've implemented, the results are coming out, we'll now pay you. In that case, it's very important up front to understand, well, what is the baseline? And then, you know, what is the, that's going to be the market which, at which you're measured. And then what's the target? And so getting that baseline information can frequently be difficult and not even, and not necessarily because the client's resistant. Sometimes they don't even have that information. Oh, so you don't actually even have the baseline information that they have tied their success fee to. That's right. So how do you usually overcome that challenge? So sometimes what we'll do is we'll have an upfront diagnostic phase where we'll go through and with along with the client, we'll do measurements and we will agree that, yes, this is the baseline so that we will have, say, a month's worth of data to demonstrate that this is how they're performing today so that when we go to show 
how we're doing in the future, that's the baseline upon which we're compared. So now that you're established and have a track record of work and successful projects behind you, do you find that it's easier to do these negotiations? I think that the thing that's perhaps a little bit easier is that we're more experienced and we know what to look for. The thing that makes it almost more difficult is back in the early days, and many times I was, you know, the Burning Group was viewed as just, hey, it's a one-man shop, few people. So companies would be a lot less strict around their contracts. Whereas now, as the Burning Group is viewed as a much larger mid-sized boutique consulting firm, it's expected that we are able to meet all the requirements uh, in a typical procurement process. So in the early years, you may have had less leverage, but you had a more understanding client, perhaps on the other side of the table. Yeah. So given that so much of your work is focused on innovation, how often is scope creep an issue for you as you negotiate these agreements where new features, new ideas are going to emerge as you're discussing and exploring what's possible through automation and other new developments? So scope creep, I think, is the biggest challenge in consulting just as a whole. Um, you know, as a consulting firm, you're very motivated to get a project, win a project, get that signed statement of work. And then as a client, you're motivated to get as much as possible out of your consultant. Now, setting up the initial statement of work correctly upfront is key to a successful project. But there are frequently challenges. So as much as you want to define everything about uh, how a project will operate and what the deliverables will be, frequently you don't really know until you get there as to how it's exactly going to look. And sometimes that can mean a lot of extra work. So one example, we're working with one client doing some automation work. And one of our challenges is that when we initially did the diagnostic to understand their process, we came up with a certain scope. It wasn't until later that we started to dig in that we learned that there was actually a bunch of exceptions, a, different, a, a number of different ways of operating that required a significant change and extension of work in order to manage all of those exceptions. And the client said, well, we gave you plenty of time to go in and see the process, and we weren't able to see some of those exceptions. So then the question becomes, well, what do you do about that? And so that's where I think some of the debate um, happens. What we've done to try to protect against that is two things. One, become really diligent upfront when we're defining our statement of work as to exactly what is in scope and making sure we've got a really extensive set of questions to understand exactly what needs to be delivered. And second is putting in a very good change management process so that if there are changes, very clearly defining how are those changes managed, whose responsibility is it to call out and make the change, and then what are the implications? Will, it be, will there be an extension of the project? Uh, will there be additional fees that the client is required to pay? But having that discussion upfront really helps to manage challenges that might come later on in the project. This sounds like another example where the relationships that you've built and invested in pay dividends if you do end up in a situation like this. Exactly. So if you have a good relationship, it helps. And if you do it effectively, if you, if you follow the process well and stringently, sometimes people might cringe at the, some of the uh, work required to do it well. 
but it helps the relationship long term because then there are no surprises later on. Do you have clients that are surprised to learn all the ways that you could potentially help them with their business and the technology and new innovation and automation that is now available to them? Yeah, frequently when we go in and we speak with a client, we'll go in with one of our practice areas and one of our leaders and it will be on a particular topic, whether that's strategy or operations or automation or innovation. And once we've done work in that area, when we come to them and say, hey, by the way, we are also very deep and very experienced in some of these other areas, they say, wow, how can a firm like the Bernie Group, who's mid-sized, be able to have such a, a broad scope? And so I think that that owes to the strengths of some of our leaders, that we can have such diversity. And, you know, that ability is something that our clients really value. I would think that most people aren't staying up on the developments with these tools the way that you guys are and won't necessarily understand what the capabilities are. Yeah, and it's uh, specific tools, but also just how innovation is going to really change their industry. And so often we see with our clients is that they're so focused on the day-to-day that they're not thinking about how technology innovation are going to impact them three to five years from now. It's the classic case of Kodak when digital cameras came along or Netflix putting Blockbuster out of business or even Uber with taxi companies today. These innovations are things that if you're in the moment and you're trying to focus on your core business, you're not thinking about how innovation is going to change the industry and your company going forward. So how do you stay on top of these new developments and technologies? Your clients span a wide variety of industries, don't they? Uh, They do. And so we put a high value on uh, investing time in learning about these innovative technologies. And so while it's important for our practice leaders to be working with clients and execute on our projects, uh, they also reserve a fair amount of time to be looking at new innovations and thinking about how those will impact the future And much of our work sort of lines up well with that. We've worked with a lot of companies to think about how innovation will impact their business. And so through that project work, we actually are able to see, you know, what is the broad scope of 5G and IoT and, you know, automation, et cetera. So that helps us stay on top and and ahead of the curve. So a lot of people go out on their own as consultants, relatively few of them will go on to build a boutique mid-sized consulting firm like you have. Did you always intend to build a firm or did it sort of naturally grow and evolve as you did client work uh, yourself? Well, I did start out by calling it the Bernie Group. So (laughs) (laughs) I did have the aspiration to make it larger than just myself. And I think that if there are independents who who have the aspiration to grow, to build a team or a larger organization... I think that it does come back to that uh, element that we were talking about earlier about relationship. Um, It's about, are you able to establish a a trusting relationship with senior leadership, senior leaders who will trust that you can not only deliver yourself, but that you can bring a team to the table that can help to execute and deliver. And so there's a a bunch of strategies to do that Um, early on. And still today, we've really leveraged independent consultants These are consultants who aren't part of the burning group, but who operate independently. And frequently I get to, I've gotten to know literally hundreds of them. And depending on the project, we'll pull them in. So they've got a really deep expertise 
and that lot of experience to help us deliver on projects. And so there are ways that creatively you can put together a team that is very senior, very experienced, um, and great value to a cl- client compared to going to one of the top tier firms. Do you get approached by a lot of independent consultants who are interested to learn how you built this firm? Uh, frequently, yeah. We have, there's uh, one organization called Umbrex, which is a collection of independent consultants who have worked at top tier firms. And we have annual conferences. And frequently I'll speak on how, uh, what, it, uh, what it takes to become more of a boutique and some strategies that they can employ to grow their own uh, independent consulting firm. And where do you want to take the Bernie Group looking forward? So this is a question I frequently get by both clients and people who are joining uh, the Bernie Group. And I will always say that my goal is to ensure that we're delivering great value to our clients, that the people who work at the Bernie Group have a stimulating and uh, really rewarding experience, and that collectively clients uh, team members, myself, we're all having fun. And I think that rather than setting some big audacious goal of X millions of dollars, I'd rather make sure that we're delivering on you know, those objectives of delivering great quality work. And then from there, everything else will follow. So if someone is interested in learning more about the Burning Group or potentially working with you on a project, what's the best way for them to get more information or potentially get in touch with you? So there's a few ways. Uh, first, you can go to our website, burninggroup.com, B-U-R-N-I-E-G-R-O-U-P.com. Or you can email me at david.burney at burninggroup.com. Or you can give me a call, 416-509-8396. I think it's a really impressive company that you've built here with a strong team and a great list of clients. I think that this story will be very inspirational to a lot of consultants out there who are starting out on their own, but have aspirations of building something bigger. Thank you very much for sharing this story with us. I really appreciate your time today, David. Thanks a lot, Stuart. All right. I really enjoyed that conversation with David Burney. Now I'm going to speak with David Cummings of Caravel Law. All right. Delighted to be joined on the podcast now by David Cummings from Caravel Law. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice? Thanks, Stuart. I'm happy to be here, too. I'm primarily a commercial lawyer, and I focus on technology outsourcings, and not just big outsourcings, but any kind of supply and service agreements. And they range from small deals to complex arrangements and procurement-type stuff. And um, we get into emerging technologies such as AI and blockchain and, and a lot of data issues that are popping up now. I just had a conversation with David Burney from Burney Group. And we talked about some of the difficulties uh, in relation to their services and specifically around scope creep on projects, which I know is a common issue that goes beyond uh, just consulting projects. So how have, you seen, how have you seen companies effectively get clarity on scope without you know, having to default to a very long, complicated agreement with lots of legalese in there? Yeah, I don't think that it, it needs to be overly complicated. You know, Obviously, the agreements that I look at range from large 50 page plus sometimes master services agreements to five page services agreements. And typically if you're acting for the vendor, you try and limit the, the scope of, of the consulting services to maybe a one page description or a half page description and get it set out in there. And if you're acting for the customer, you, you try and make it a little, a little broader. And typically it's a point of negotiation about whether some type of extra services are going to be provided or, or whatnot. But if you're 
if you're asking for the vendor, you just try and limit it to whatever's in, in a specific schedule. And the parties will typically discuss up front what it is that the consultant or the service provider is going to be providing. And you, you want to set that out in the schedule as, as clearly as possible and, and try and manage the party's expectations that way. It's got to be fairly common with services like app development that new feature ideas and things like that come up along the way. Have you seen any best practices or common mistakes that people run into as new ideas, new features, things that might have been missed emerge over the course of a project? Yeah, I think uh, from from the vendor perspective, a lot of times what happens is, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, customers will try and sneak in a clause that says, in addition to what's set out in the schedule or the description of services, the vendor's going to provide all ancillary services. That's that sort of common language that you'll see. It's this extra, this extra whatever necessary services to provide whatever whatever we need. And then the parties don't set out specific procedures for dealing with changes or getting outside of the scope of services and what that might entail. So again, it's best to sort of define this in the contract if you can, but oftentimes consultants or, or other types of service providers will agree to that extra language and not realize the implications for it. And they won't set out a procedure for dealing with scope changes, not just with the services, but the types of deliverables that are provided and how IP ownership is dealt with and payment for those extra services. So yeah. if you have a situation where there's a disagreement between the vendor and the customer as to whether something was included in the original scope of a project, What's the best way for them to work through a situation like that? So I think, again, it's upfront in dealing with it in the contract. And a common mechanism that you'll see in any type of sort of services or consulting relationship, be it app development or IT consulting or whatnot, is it's called the change order mechanism. Essentially, the mechanism is such that when one party wants to present a scope change or say, I want another deliverable, they present it to the other party. And typically what it has to include is what is the new scope that you want? What is the effect on fees? What is the effect on IP ownership? And what's the effect on any kind of termination or termination payments or whatnot? It's a little more flexible than than a formal amendment. It, it allows the the Without going to the lawyers, the, the commercial parties can do this business to business. David, you mentioned IP ownership as one of the considerations. I think most people think of scope creep and just in terms of how does it affect the price. Uh, how does IP ownership come into play? So depending on how the parties negotiate who's going to own what in terms of work material that's created and deliverables and reports and any other IP that's created via apps or other software or, or whatnot, as the scope changes, who owns what could, could also change. So it, it's pretty clear up front, or at least it should be clear, and, and at the point of negotiation, whether it's going to be the consultant or the customer that's going to own specific IP that's created. But as the scope changes, and as scope change requests are made, the party should consider at that time who's going to own the new, if you want to call it the new scope or scope B, who owns the, the developments from that. So I, 
parties shouldn't lose sight of that. I think that's pretty, pretty important. And that is often a common mistake. They just focus on pricing and new work, but not how it affects any kinds of new IP that that's also created. That's a great point to consider. Are there any new developments in or procedures that you're seeing come up now in, in uh, contract negotiation? Yeah, so I think the big thing, and it's sort of a buzzword, in uh, especially in the app development and, and software development industry, but it's, it's creeping into other industries as well. I see it in, in legal departments and whatnot is, is the word agile. And it's, it refers to the agile development process. And it, what we were talking about before tends to apply to what I would call waterfall de- development. It's where everything is developed, especially in, in the app and software world, everything's developed up front. And then there's at the end, at the, at the end of the waterfall, for lack of a better analogy, the, cons- the customer at the end can test the, the software and, or look at all the deliverables and say, yes, everything looks good. And they sort of test everything at, at the end. And, and in that development process, scope changes take place formally. And there's sort of these formal process change orders that we talked about and whatnot. So in Agile, the way it works is it's, it's all about collaboration and the customer. And you set out a process where the customer and the vendor work in, uh, there's specific agile terms, but they basically work in weekly or two week, what they call sprints. And at the beginning of a, of a project, you set out, um, here's what we want an app to look like, or here's what we want a piece of software to look like. And then, and then they get going on and you sort of have, uh, it's almost like a, they call it a project backlog or a project feature list, which, which lists the scope of the project and, and the features that everyone wants to work towards. And then every two weeks, you work in stages towards that development and you work collaboratively. And after every two weeks, they review what works, what doesn't, what priorities need to change in terms of the app, in terms of the features, in terms of, you know, and, and things get shifted around. It's very much a fluid process and a collaborative process. And it's, it doesn't involve all these formal scope changes and, and, and whatnot. The tricky part is figuring out the remedies that the parties are going to have if, if something doesn't work and, and testing and what penalties are going to be involved. And it's, it's a different process, but that is, a lot of customers are looking for this now in terms of collaboration and a lot of vendors are meeting that and, and working on this new style of, of work together. And David, is there one common mistake that you often see that people should be aware of? Yeah, and I think it's been a, a common theme in these in our Caravel podcast on these issues that people need to think about what happens on exit of the contract because if there's everything's hunky-dory when parties get into business together and they never think anything is going to go wrong. But when there's a breach or one party's unhappy with the other, then people are going to look to the contract to see what, how can I get out of the contract and what termination payments are owing. So it's really imperative that the parties think about that at the beginning and think about what payments are going to be made and how IP and data and everything is going to be delivered at the end of the contract. I don't think that gets stressed enough. Well, that's a lot of really helpful information for people. Thank you very much for your time today, David. Okay, thanks, Stuart. Thank you for downloading and listening to this episode of the Business Decisions Podcast. I want to thank my guests this week, David Burney from the Burney Group and David Cummings from Caravel Law. 
If you'd like more information about this podcast or about Caravel Law, please check us out at caravellaw.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a rating, and perhaps share this podcast with someone else that you think might benefit from these conversations. We'll be back next week. And until then, we hope all of your business decisions are great ones.